Hi everyone, I'm Utkarsh, the founder of Network Capital, here with Mridula Ramesh, who's an entrepreneur who's built a portfolio of careers and also written a fascinating book called Watershed. So today we're going to dive deep into her career principles and explore a bit about the ideas she advances in the book. Mridula, welcome to Network Capital. Could you tell us a bit about what you do today and why? Hi Utkarsh, uh, thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So um, what do I do and why? I think like many of us, uh, the one of the questions I try to ask and answer is, what can I do about the climate change crisis? And, um, uh, you know, I come from a corporate background. I help run a couple of factories. And um, it was while doing that, uh, that we ran out of water at home. And then the, you know, day zero and the climate change crisis came, uh, came home to roost, as it were. And, uh, you know, once I started learning about it, uh, I started teaching. And in the course of teaching, uh, you know, one of the students suggested that, why don't you write? And I started writing um, in, the, um, in the Hindu, actually, in the Metro Plus. And my husband, who has a very interesting sense of humor, said, you know, when you're writing a column in the Metro Plus, uh, you're basically competing for eyeballs with the attractive woman on the page. So I had to write in such a way, which was on climate change. So I was writing about asymmetric impacts and things like that. And I had to write in a way which kept the attention going. But, you know, after 30 plus pieces, it seemed that there was a there was a natural audience for this and people were interested in what I had to say. But again, you know, the business training came in and I said, look, writing and evangelizing is fine, but is there something more I can do? And uh, while most people think of this as, uh, a, uh, you know, NGO development space, um, I said, look, why not startups? And I sort of spent some time in with McKinsey in Silicon Valley, and it, that was something that attracted me. And I, from the beginning, I said, look, you know, I'm going to do clean tech startups. I don't want to do mobile apps. And this was in 2015. And uh, there weren't that many, you know, uh, clean tech adaptation kind of startups then. But I kept at it. And, you know, as I, I was just telling somebody else, uh, and I'm going to do a call on startups right after this. Um, at that time, you know, if a month came by and I had one startup to evaluate, it was considered a good month. Last week, there were eight startups that uh, I looked at for various purposes. So it's, it's really accelerated. And um, the kind of wonderful work that these startups do is just, I call them my vaccinations of hope. Right. The climate change crisis can be a depressing place to spend a lot of time in. And each of these startups and the amazing energy and ideas and determination the founders bring to it um, is really great. And what I hope I can offer them is a, a informed and patient hearing because a lot of investors come from the tech side where they don't necessarily understand the interconnections in the climate change world. And that's something I hope I bring to the table. And um, it's a very rewarding part of my uh, uh, work. So, you know, these are the three things I do. I, I um, uh, run the factories and there we really look at the carbon side of things because um, electricity is very expensive. Um, um, and we are a zero waste company. Like waste is really like segregating, managing and uh, weighing and selling our waste is really central to how, uh, you know, uh, financially stable we are and then of course writing which is uh, uh, I really look at it as very structured learning and uh, it's a way of communicating also and it's sort of it the startups weaves into the writing you know the writing weaves into the startups and then uh, just a it's a wonderful opportunity to learn and of course to extend the learning is Sundram Climate Institute where um, right. you know I, as you go into water more and more, you realize there is no data or the lack thereof is uh, such a serious problem. So Sundaram Climate Institute came up with a single point agenda. We need data on waste and water and we need to figure out what works and why. And can we do something to advance that? And um, So, you know, these are the four things I do. Fascinating. 
Um, Ritula, why did you write this book and what was the process of uh, structuring it? Because um, it goes on to cover, you know, tangible strategies. There is Megaduta in the middle. There are practical case studies. There's your personal example. It's not an easy book to write. Walk us through the early days. Okay. Um, so again, you know, the first book I wrote was called The Climate Solution, which um, which was about India's climate uh, change crisis and what you can do about it. And, uh, uh, you know, after that book, I got into a lot of climate conversations, as it were. Until then, I was really a... Um, so once I started getting into them, I said, look, you know, these climate conversations are all about carbon. But what was really uh, interesting to me was the climate itself spoke through water. Right. And as the climate has started heating up, the water voice is shrieking. You can see it in the rising cadence of storms and floods and paradoxically the rising incidence of drought. So my thing was like, you know, we've crossed certain climate thresholds. I think all of us can feel it. And with India being such a vulnerable uh, country to this climate change, why are we not talking about water? So that has sort of been a defining journey in the last three years. And once you take a topic like water, you realize that, you know, if you look at it with just one lens, you're going to have an incomplete understanding and therefore an incomplete solutioning which is why the book covers history, philosophy, engineering. Um, you know, we just go into technology again and again. Even yesterday in another interview, somebody asked me, uh, what do you see as technology? I said, look, technology is a tool. What matters is the context you use it in and the incentives of the people who are using it. You know, today the world is all about technology. But And then they asked me, what is the greatest water technology that you've seen? And I said, look, you know, the greatest water technology I've seen is something that's 1,500 years old. And I think they expected me to say something like blockchain, which uh, I didn't do. I said, no, it is our uh, cascading tanks, which are 1,500 years old, but they're like, you know, they're, they're like a fantastic technology. They're superbly effective. And, uh, uh, you know, that or the Kalanai, which is the Grand Anikut, I mean, they, they sort of, their design betrays such a wonderful understanding of the unique water of India. True that. Um, why is water not given the importance? Why is it all being hijacked by say other competing areas is it a problem that seems important but one that we can delay or we can look at it another time it's just surprising okay until you spoke about water and i say this in conferences and sort of make people feel a little uncomfortable until we started speaking about water did you notice the bottle of water on your desk yeah like we got to pay attention to these things so it's invisible to you, right? So that's the whole point. And I'm not trying to put you on the spot. It's true. It's true with everyone. It was true with me. And um, that's why I don't judge people. And it's, it's, you never get action if you put people on the defensive. And to me, water was completely invisible until it ran out of, it ran out at home, right? And then you realize how fundamental it is to life. And uh, until then, it's invisible. And that's part of the problem because, you know, historically in ancient India, water was never invisible. And communities felt it was their problem to manage their own water. Today, water has become invisible, something that we feel the government should provide and we play no role in it. And that is perhaps why we are both in the crisis and why perhaps we don't give it the attention it deserves. You've lived through a few water crises. Uh, what did you observe about uh, income inequality when you were going through these crises? And what did you observe about the society at large? Okay, so um, this this understanding really came, um, you know, it was sort of stark uh, through the studies of Sundaram Climate Institute. So we spoke to a variety of households from different income levels, over 2,000 of them um, over the last few years to understand what their waste and water realities were. And, you know, some of the things that we found out were quite surprising. Many people didn't know how much water they used, right? But people who caught water 
which they collected from the local tanker or the common pipe knew precisely how much water they used because they collected it, you know, uh, in port after port, which they had to fight with their neighbors for to get and carry to their house. So they knew exactly how much water they used. And what was shocking is the water availability varied over the course of the year. In summer, it typically fell and during monsoon times, it typically swelled. What was shocking, uh, Utkarsh, was that there were large part, you know, not, there was a significant portion of people, or let me put it differently, there was a, not an insignificant portion of people living on less than 50 liters of water a day. That's just two buckets right. for every need, cooking, cleaning, washing, getting rid of your waste, and some got even less than that. Right, and I can tell you, for them, water was central. For many of us, water is peripheral. For them, water was central. And what was shocking to me is many of them had to buy water because the water they got was not of very good quality. And many of them had to buy water and because they couldn't afford it, the kind of compromises they had to make were like really sickening. Like there was this person we spoke to, she had two children and her stories in the book. They shared a two-year-old and a six-month-old, but she could only buy enough water for the six-month-old. And the two-year-old had to, you know, depend on her little baby uh, immune system to cope with whatever the, you know, the regular less um, well-treated water was. You know, that's the kind of compromise uh, people need to make. And it's, it's inequalities, I think, very, very stark in water, very stark. Yeah. And in India, we've gone through a whole phase, right? From the time where water was sacred to the time we started taking water for granted till the time it became invisible. And now we're realizing the fault lines and trying to uh, pave our way back. In the book, one of the things that you've done really well is to make uh, water a part of the climate, a part of the conversation with, in a relatable way. And you do that by you know many case studies like the one you referenced. Um, can you talk about... Uh, some obvious things that uh, people should be doing or should be worried about but weren't for the longest time daily practices or the way the governments were managing i know there's a section on politics in your book but we'll come to that a bit later you know one aspect of the water crisis in india is the groundwater crisis right so there are hmm. every like different neighborhoods are experiencing uh, a state wherein they don't get municipal water and they've run out of their groundwater, right? And then they ask, what do you right. do? So uh, one of the studies that we looked at is to really look at tanks, which are these lakes that you see in, uh, in and around India. Often they're um, cascading lake systems, which, you know, they're either fed through a common stream or one lake gets filled and then whatever overflows from there flows to the next lake in the system. So right. these are ubiquitous in India. In You know, so many cities have them. And uh, we looked, we looked at a group of lakes, you know, I think first we studied 15, then we upped the number and then asked uh, crowdsourced data from thousands of people saying, you know, how does groundwater vary from at different distances from this lake? And how does that depend on the condition of the lake? Right. So we found two things. We found a clear link between the groundwater levels uh, around the lake and the quality of the lake. So whenever a lake was what we called functional, where it did what it was supposed to do, um, groundwater levels tended to be 200 feet higher than when it wasn't functional. And there are many factors that make a lake functional. But one of the things we found was um, how many months in a year it held water. And that in turn was dependent on how one of the not only thing it was dependent on, but one of the things that really ensured a lake was functional is how closely a community was connected to the lake, right? So you said, you know, at one point, water was sacred. And in our studies, we found that uh, um, many of these functional lakes, the lake or the tank was the center of festivities. Okay, it was the celebrated child in, in villages, it conferred status, it can gave you cash flow because earlier the kind of uh, fishes that used to survive in the lakes were, uh, you know, it worked with the seasonality of India's water and it provided good cash flow for those who were not able to tap into the status benefits. Right. 
but then as the cities expanded and these lakes became you know engulfed by buildings and started becoming more valuable dry than wet that is you fill up the lake and now hey presto you have a new neighborhood so um, obviously when that happens the groundwater goes down right and then you have the groundwater crisis right and uh, one of the the we looked at the data correlation but a wonderful story of how you can flip this around is the story of rajendra singh in alwar in rajasthan yeah. and uh, the story goes you know in 1984 alwar looked to become a climate victim where its uh, inhabitants were moving away because it was just too hot like for many decades alwar was the hottest place in india and it was just too dry they couldn't grow anything so the men moved away and the women were just you know the children couldn't go to school because they were involved with their mothers gathering water and that's when rajendra singh and a group of his friends came and you know they wanted to teach the children but the villagers weren't interested but i think rajendra ji asked the question that so many people who want to intervene don't ask he said what can i do so they said look we need water he then he said the second thing a lot of people don't ask he said i don't know what anything about water and can you teach me and uh, you know he said he got two phd's in two days um uh, because he learned about how these tanks worked and then he you know he and mango baba started digging and they dug and dug dug for months and then the monsoon came and then the johard filled up right and the well that was not connected to the johard that filled up too and that's the whole point of the link between the tank and the groundwater right and slowly they started holding campaigns and the villagers started saying what can we do and they started involving the villagers and you you move forward a decade right or a couple of decades and you find that they have rejuvenated thousands of these tanks brought i first told him he's brought six rivers back to life and he corrected me and said no we brought 12 rivers back to life and you know the community like a lot of interventions talk about water supply they don't address water demand but right. what was wonderful in this case is he got the community involved they put together this parliament for a river and in the par- river parliament demand is very clearly addressed you know there the how bore wells are used what kind of livestock is allowed what kind of crops are allowed is fishing allowed who is allowed to fish all demand side things are kept into place now asked him how do you enforce it he said look the community enforces it and they do it because they know they've put in the back breaking work to rejuvenate all this and it's a whole equilibrium that shifted right because a lot of people don't understand how important forests are to india's water and they got it because the moment you have upstream forests they help trap the rain slow the rain and then uh, you know hold the silt back so once you have functioning upstream forests you don't have to desilt the tanks that much right and you get more water during the summer time and you know less during the rain time which is great because you don't want flooding in the rain so they understood how this equilibrium worked and more importantly he because he was working shoulder to shoulder with the community the community was totally vested so anybody comes and tries including the government tries to you know uh disrupt the equilibrium it's stable and i think uh, uh that's a wonderful case study of uh, several elements of india's water right first water is everybody's problem it's not just for the government to manage um second i think you can't just shift one piece you have to manage both demand and supply right supply in terms of both surface water and ground water how forests are involved but also demand in terms of what you grow who is allowed to uh, you know how you extract water who is allowed to grow livestock how you fish all of that i think it's a wonderful exemplar of what you can the power of what you can do in you know one of the driest hottest places in india uh mridula tell me a bit about the indian monsoon it seems like there's uh, it's a particular beast what's it like and what should people know about it that they don't currently um no thank you utkarsh uh, see i think most of us when we did geography in high school we learned of the indian monsoon as a giant land sea breeze right 
But it turns out it's a lot more complicated than that. Because, uh, you know, one question that struck many people is, look, if it's a land sea breeze, which is based on temperature differentials, the maximum temperature difference is in May, but the maximum rainfall happens in July. Why is that? The second question that came up is the monsoon is not continuous. There are breaks in the monsoon and the breaks are a characteristic of the Indian monsoon. So what's going on? And uh, even though, you know, uh, Kalidasa, uh, you know, centuries ago sort of poetically call, calls the monsoon the cloud messenger, Meghaduta, but <clears throat> scientists in the 60s and 70s started looking at satellite pictures, right? And um, what the scientists found were that the monsoon was actually cloud progressions. It was not continuous, but there was a set of cloud progressions moving from a cloud band over the Indian Ocean to another cloud band which settled over the middle of the Indian subcontinent. So it was a messenger, right, ferrying uh, moisture from over the Indian Ocean traveling to the Indian subcontinent. And every time the gap between one progression and the other resulted in breaks, right? So there was no rainfall at all. And once they realized, okay, this is what's going on, they found that, um, and uh, they found that the monsoon was not just influenced by factors, you know, which are local, uh, which is the land sea temperature difference, the mountains, etc., uh, the forests, etc. It was influenced by global factors. And um, this realization, you know, goes back a couple of centuries, um, you know, to the formation of the IMD, where uh, one of the first uh, meteorological reporters noticed this, like, you know, he said, look, whenever the monsoon fails here, it seems to fail all across the world as well. So what's going on? And they found out, you know, the El Nino uh, plays a significant role in the monsoon. So where every time we have a really powerful El Nino, India often sees uh, drought and you see breaks in the monsoon. And there is another global factor called the Indian Ocean Dipole, which is again, like, you know, people call it the El Nino of the Indian Ocean, which again modulates rainfall. Then you have a third little thing that, you know, that uh, changes the rainfall within a mon monsoon season. So this is a movement called the Madden-Julian Oscillation where it just moves, you know, just think of it like a bus moving across the world. And every time the bus is over your area, you get a lot of rain. So if you, let's just say you have an El Nino and you have an Indian Ocean Dipole, which is not favorable, and the Madden-Julian Oscillation is not favorable, you'll have a really, really dry time. Conversely, if you have a La Nina, for instance, like this past year has been a La Nina, and then you have a, uh, you know, a favorable Indian Ocean dipole. And then you have the Madden-Julian Oscillation moving over you at that time. The bus, so-called, is over you. You're guaranteed, all, you're, you're not, you're almost guaranteed flooding. So, right. and, you know, the El Nino, the Indian Ocean dipole are all influenced by global warming. So the monsoon is not just a land-sea breeze. It varies on all these factors. And recently they found out, uh, you know, the melting of Arctic sea ice changes the jet stream and that influences the monsoon. So, you know, you're seeing that marine heat waves over the Indian Ocean is leading to uh, disruptions in how the monsoon rain operates. Right? You've just got all these influences going in and out. So it's, it's a complex beast. So, and I think the meteorological scientists in India really deserve a call out, right? Because they've really been at it hard and uh, they've been able to predict things like the track of the cyclones, how it's going to make landfall, and there is preparations made so that people can get evacuated. So even though the number of storms, in the not the number of storms, sorry, even though the power of the storms has been going up, right? Look at Amphan, it was a monster. But the death toll from those monsoons has been going up. You know, the damage and the power of those monsoons have been going up because of better understanding, better predictability, um, you know, being forewarned and therefore forearmed and preparing and evacuating people, the death toll is coming down. 
So it's a scary thing because as um, you know, once you realize the monsoon is fully subject to global warming, you realize things like cyclones are just going to become more powerful. That's the scary thing, right? But uh, the positive is because we understand it better, we can prepare ourselves better. Got it. That's fascinating. I wish uh, this was taught in schools and I hope that your book actually reaches a lot of school principals and administrators so that this awareness can be uh, evangelized. Thanks, Pradula. One of the things that I took away from the book was the importance of uh, demand-based interventions. Can you talk a bit more about why that's important and what can people and communities do in terms of consumer demand and so forth to make it front and center of, say, corporate strategy or elections and so forth? Okay. So I think this is the biggest problem in India's water, right? We don't think of demand at all. Um, and when demand, you don't have data on demand, it's a black hole you're confronting. And the, I don't know how you can manage a black hole, right? So let me just come to my own example, um, because it's very tangible, it's relatable to people. And I'll use both the example at home and then the example in the factory. So when we ran out of water, we, we started buying water, we finally figured out how much water we were using, and it was a lot. But then we asked a question, where are we using the water? And we realized we had no idea. We had an educated guess, but we really didn't have an idea. So the first thing we did was put meters. We started with one, and slowly that mushroomed into 15 water meters for one house. We'd say it's excessive, but it helps us manage our water easily. So the moment you put meters, once there was darkness, now there is light. And it was very simple to start making changes and seeing the effect, right? It's like trying to lose weight without having a weighing scale. Sure, you can do it, but I think most of us would slip into denial. Um, same thing in the factory. I think uh, we are not a major water using factory, right? We don't have dyeing or wet processes or anything like that. But we still put in 100 water meters. And without those, it's very difficult to catch where it's leaking. And uh, the moment we did, did that, we could save millions of liters of water in a year at a very, very low cost, right? And I think that's what my message in managing demand is. One, you really need to know how you're using water. So some form of metering or some sort of understanding of where you're using, I think is is um, you can't you know you just that's a non-negotiable the second thing and this is a slightly more controversial topic is a price right? right i think um we all say we value water but do we really and i think all of us sort of get our act together when we when we are confronted with the price but unfortunately that that tends to happen when you're run out of water and you're buying tanker water which is ridiculously expensive but um, this and it, it's sort of perplexing and i've gone through the book that there is such an emotional opposition to pricing water today right but if you look at the history of india's water it has always had a price right if you look at chanakya um, hmm. he talks of um, uh, pricing water for crops uh, but when you look at it it's a price paid in kind, which works wonderfully with India's seasonal water, right? So in a year where the rain is not that good, if you paid in kind, your crop was typically bad. So when you paid in kind, you paid a smaller tax, smaller effective tax. When you had like wonderful rains and you had a bountiful crop because you paid as a share of crop, paid a larger tax, right? And um, what is really interesting to me about Chanakya's uh, water tax was people who used more water paid a higher price. So farmers who would manually carry water to water their fields paid a lower tax than farmers who use some mechanical means to cart water to their fields. So it was, it was very interesting in how he managed demand because he said, look, the bulk users, the bigger users will use most of the water. It's the 80-20 rule. So let me right. charge them more. And that was perfectly sensible. But today we've sort of, you know, the, the wealthier amongst us have a bore well and if you're a farmer, you typically have a borewell powered by free electricity. So you're essentially paying nothing. 
whereas the poorer people you know like the person the lady i spoke of who we spoke to has to decide whether to buy enough water for her 6 month old or the 2 year old so you know we've really gone into a uh, dystopian present as it were because of yeah. this opposition this mental opposition to managing demand we don't think it's our problem i think that's at the heart of india's water problem we don't think it's our problem we don't think we are part of the solution is that reflected in the elections as well is water an election issue today is it likely to be one okay uh so i've i've been i've struggled with that question right to really answer whether it is and um i can cogitate and think all i want but you know i've always found that going and asking people is a more productive use of my time so we went and asked that question would you vote hmm. on water and we asked this to more than 900 people um 600 people gave us an answer about 600 i'm i'm rounding figures here huh? sure um uh, about 600 people gave us an answer and most people said no they would not vote on water and we asked this question during the middle of uh, the drought you know when uh, chennai ran out of water and bb said uh, bbc said yeah chennai is finished no more water that's the time when we ran this survey in madurai and even at that time people said they won't vote on water right and the people who said they would vote on water said they would vote if they got a connection right or a sewerage connection that was how they they no only one man i think in the 900 plus people we spoke to said whoever diesels the tanks would get my vote so you can very clearly see uh, the answer of whether water is an election issue is a nuanced one and that's what i've looked at i think people may vote for water provision that is if there are there is a community which doesn't have water and you bring water to them like for example what the jaljeevan mission is trying to do you will get votes perhaps on the margin right um once you take care of other factors but i i'm not sure there is enough data to say political leaders will get rewarded for management so what does management involve it involves clearing encroachers it involves from you know encroachers from channels right it involves pricing electricity for farmers it involves putting a water price so you can actually measure how demand is you it involves uh, putting meters and i think putting that's going to be checks, yeah. it's it's essentially managing demand right and i'm not entirely sure there is enough data to say that uh political leaders will get rewarded for that and one of the reasons for that is management takes a long time right and it happens in the background it happens silently in small steps and that doesn't lend itself to a political discourse or a narrative i've given the example of malkapur where it has worked but i think that was a politically safe space for them to experiment and do it and where it works it is it works when you when political leaders and bureaucracy work shoulder to shoulder with civil society and communities so it's slow it's small it's frustrating so much easier to sort of you know make grand announcements and win elections and i think you know again we expect uh unrealistic things from our political leaders i mean they have a job to their job is to lead and to also win elections otherwise they're not going to be able to lead and i think we need to sort of grapple with this to some extent um before we can make real progress on india's water and that's why my emphasis has always been on a decentralized solution which involves the community rather than central policy driven big bang kind of solutions yeah 100% uh in the book there's a chapter where you talk about where future is not equal to the past and um you paint to pay, uh, you you present a case study of this dutch asset manager i think actium um, and his ceo was saying how well one of the portfolio companies was who was initially reluctant on implementing uh, but initially then changed their mind so um in your portfolio companies or the companies that you speak to are you observing a similar trend um are there new technologies that you're excited by um that are emerging in this space and can we look at technologies plus communities if there is any solution that has come to your mind or you're evaluating yourself okay so 
Um, I think, again, let me try to break your question. You're trying, you're asking me, what am I seeing as trends within my portfolio companies? And then- Yeah, trends within, within your portfolio companies globally, you know, there seems to be some movement in some parts of the world. And uh, if you could just present a picture of that. See, I think the point I make in the book is technology is not the bottleneck, right? It's not the thing that is holding us back from solving our water problem. And somewhat more contentiously, I also say money is not really the problem. The problem is really incentives at the last mile. And uh, in the portfolio companies, some of the ones that I'm most excited about are in the agriculture space, right? And hmm. they address um, water indirectly, right? So ag agriculture is the biggest user of India's water. But what we are less aware of is a lot of our crops ro rot away, right? Because of poor post-harvest management. And if you prevent that rot, you're actually saving water, right? Because once it rots, you've basically wasted all the water it took to grow it. And there are several companies I talk in that space. And um, I'm seeing companies, you know, like just taking warehouses that are there. And these are, again, just buildings. So it's not like high tech, but they're managing it very well, right? They're actually putting a watchman, they're uh, uh, using moisture meters, they're making sure things are packed immediately and packed correctly, moisture meters to make sure there's no uh, wet grain packed there, using pesticide in conjunction with a correct provider so you're not really poisoning the grain but you're using it appropriately. So they, in doing so, they're bringing losses from 25% to 2%. So again, you know, nothing like super high tech, but technology managed appropriately. So imagine the mountains of water that they're saving. Another company, you know, does mangoes. Uh, again, I think 30% of mangoes goes to waste. They take the mango, they grade it. And, you know, they say, look, slightly hurt mangoes, which I can't sell. I can make value added products out of these. Again, more income to the farmer. Um, you know, the water is saved. And at the same time, you are getting uh, more value added product. Again, not, you know, high tech technologies or anything, but existing technologies used and managed appropriately. And there are more, you know, there are quite a few other case studies that are there. It's very exciting. I'm seeing um, one of the companies that I've invested in uses microbial enzymes to treat leather and textiles rather than um, you know, harsher chemicals, which leave a residue and require both RO and evaporator and all of that, which is both expensive and carbon intensive. So this just eliminates the, you know, um, either the water that has been used for processing doesn't need treatment at all, or needs far less treatment. I'm seeing really exciting things come up in sewage treatment and effluent treatment, which is both cost effective and uh, very good in treating sewage. So, you know, a lot of those exciting trends that are happening, but not perhaps at the scale we needed to. But again, that goes back to, you know, is the customer asking for responsibly, responsibly treated textiles? Are they willing to pay, you know, what it takes? Because one of the examples I give is a $10 t-shirt from 1991 sells for $9 and change today, 20 years later, right? There's not a whole lot of sustainability you can do with that kind of deflation in 20 years and i think there needs to be a recognition that some aspects of sustainability does cost money and uh, it's you know would you or i be no actually would anyone be averse to paying six rupees more for a t-shirt that has been uh, pr produced responsibly perhaps not and i think that realization that it's not a lot and if you pay it and you actually trace it you might actually crack the water pollution problem to a very significant extent. I think it's a realization I'm trying to share through the book. Yeah. Um, hopefully a lot of millennials and Gen Zs will read your book because there's also a generational angle on network capital. We observe that Gen Zs tend to be a lot more um, attuned to climate issues and water issues. And I wonder, uh, maybe they would be a lot more inclined to pay a small premium um, towards water sensitivity, climate sensitivity, who knows, but uh, that seems to be one way to go. 
So Mridula, there's a chapter in your book called The Brahmastra in Our Back Pocket. And uh, you talk about a wide range of uh, solutions here. Uh, could you give us a brief about what does that mean? What does Brahmastra in a, bo- a back pocket imply? And um, what are some tangible things that uh, you've observed while writing the book that gives you hope about the water crisis? Okay, so one of the realizations as I wrote this uh, book is that India's water is so different when you look at it as a whole, right? It is geographically so variable. It is one of the most seasonal waters in the world, right? And uh, it is temporally skewed. Like, you know, we have one of the fewest days on which it rains compared to other countries. And then it varies from year to year. And I think if you don't have an understanding of, you know, the nature of India's water, which, I mean, I'll say that many people don't, uh, Hmm. any solution that you come up with, any technology that you use is going to be ineffective, right? So I actually talk of technologies that work with these facets and technologies that don't. One of the most effective technologies, therefore, and that's why I call it the Brahmastra in a back pocket, is sewage, right? Hmm. Our treated sewage. Because, you know, sewage is right where you are, right? So there is no geographical variability. It is, uh, it's not seasonal because you go to the toilet every day, it's reassuringly predictable, right? It doesn't vary across years. It's not temporally skewed. It's, it overcomes every one of India's facets. And that's precisely why I call it the Brahmastra in the back pocket. Um, and in an earlier, more naive avatar, I would have said, you know, just put a policy where it says, um, let get, let's just get bulk users of sewage to treat their own sewage and then you're home free. You've solved the problem. Yeah. But funnily enough, in that chapter, I look at a city which has done precisely that. And they did it, you know, 17, 15, 17 years ago. And that's Bangalore. And uh, Bangalore has one of the most stringent sewage treatment policies. And yet they have a giant lake that regularly bursts into flame because of the amount of untreated sewage flowing into it. So for people, you know, um, listening, untreated sewage causes methane, essentially. And methane is a highly flammable gas, which is why the lake flames. And because of the uh, detergents that are released into it, it forms as well. So it's quite hellish. So it's clear that the policy is not enough. So in the chapter, I look at what do you really need? And, you know, it looks at the incentives of the builders who decide the technology and the, you know, the tech specs of the plant and the users who have a very different lived reality. And one of the examples I give is, you know, in our factories, um, and because this is an evolving area, a lot of people don't understand this. In one of our factories, we went for like the plain vanilla kind of sewage treatment plant. It does its job, but it's nothing great. In the second factory where I was getting more involved in this, I said, look, why don't we look for the thing that really works well? And we went for something called an anaerobic plant. Okay, an anaerobic plant has a bad rep because people think it stinks. But if it's well designed, it doesn't. And the beauty of an anaerobic plant, and we've been using this for years now, right? And just today morning, I took a round around it also. So the beauty of this plant is it requires next to no maintenance almost zero OPEX. And you know, since I'm a user, I can vouch for that. Zero OPEX means operating expenditures. Yeah. Okay, so no chemicals, no manpower, next to no power, nothing. You fill it, forget it and let it run. And it gives me 12,000 liters of treated water every day. Imagine what that does to my water resilience. So I think this is something that people don't see again for one reason they don't see themselves as part of the water solution second once you get in there you need to understand if your builder puts something that he wants a tick mark to get the regulation satisfied he may not put the plant that is best suited to your working conditions right so uh, for instance we have plumbing that uses a different quality of water for flushing than for other water. If you don't invest in that, you're not going to be fully able to leverage uh, the power of the treated sewage, right? Because many of us may not want to wash our faces with treated sewage, but we will be perfectly happy to flush our toilets with treated sewage. But you need that 
built-in separated plumbing for it. So it doesn't cost much, not very difficult to do, but you need to think, think it through. So all of these, I think, um, um, but one of the things that makes me really, really happy and hopeful is, I think this is not a difficult puzzle to uh, uh, crack. And I think hopefully in the next few years, we'll start getting wastewater markets. Already there is a, there's a case study I put in the, uh, or a story I put in the book on how a lake and a power plant are both fighting over the treated sewage of a neighborhood in Bangalore. So I think that, that I mean, I'm sure they hate it, but to me, it gives me hope. You know, fighting over treated sewage is really where we want to be. And I think it will happen. And I think I'm very hopeful about it. Yeah, fingers crossed. Mridula, I've been personally very interested in the economics and politics of dams. And there's a chapter in the book where you talk about dams in the Northeast. Can you just explain um, what does that mean and what's happening in the Northeast that we should be aware of? Um, what are the pros and cons of it? See, I think as uh, the climate ch change crisis sort of intensifies, there's intense pressure on countries to cut their carbon footprint, right? So if you are sitting in India, you'll say, okay, I need, to, we've already pledged that we will increase our renewable share substantially, right? One of the things, uh, types of energy that is considered renewable is hydropower, right? So then if you're a person looking at, you know, tasked with solving this power, you say, okay, I need to increase renewable. Hydropower is one way I can do it. Tried and tested. We've been doing it for decades. So where can I put, where can I get more hydropower? And you go and see, and you see the Northeast is completely untapped or, you know, untapped compared to everything else. You say, okay, let me do it. It's, it's a good thing to do. Problem is China is also saying the same, making that same uh, assessment. And, uh, you know, in the, in, the, in the chapter, which I call Damming Shambhala, um, uh, it starts with uh, the the huge dam. It's supposed to be three times the size of the Three Gorges Dam that China is putting a few kilometers from um, Arunachal Pradesh. There are a couple of things that bother me with this. And look, I have full sympathy because if you're tasked with this, this is how any any person would think. But then, you know, it comes the nature of India's water. I think dams were built in an era where the water was not as volatile and with the climate warming up and I said the climate speaks the language of water right when the and the heating up climate really makes India's water far more volatile and there's a real question of are dams being overwhelmed by the intense rainfall that India brings and I think that's an important question we are seeing world over that that assumption that dams built in a different era in mind are they as effective in the climate change area a um, uh, climate change arena i'm not sure the second problem is the commercials of the dam okay and let's leave aside the current six months where energy prices are on a tear the the particular dam that i talk of in the northeast had a um a power tariff of 5 rupee 50 paisa, right? And if you look at solar bids, they are, you know, south of 3 rupees. So you start asking, is it financially viable, right? Uh, of course, your, a lot of dams, uh, depending on the size of the reservoir and the construction of the dam, involve clearing of forests. And I've, you know, we haven't gone through that in our conversation, but forests are critical to India's water, nowhere more so than in places where it rains a whole lot. Because the moment, you know, forests in places where it rains a lot provide the scaffolding to hold the trees in place, to hold the soil in place. And when you clear the forests in those kind of areas, you see landslides, which we're seeing in parts of India where forests have been cleared in intense rainfall spots. The last problem with putting a dam in such a place is it's a earthquake prone zone it's the highest earthquake risk in the country and you know i've written about uh, in the last 10 years there have been several small earthquakes there and uh, the the problem is you know once you have a giant earthquake all all bets are off right so there, i speak about this 1950 
earthquake that happened yeah. you know less than 100 kilometers from the site of this proposed dam and it re-altered you know it it altered the landscape you know there was so much debris thrown in that subansiri one of the largest rivers there was blocked up for three days and you know when the block was finally cleared the avalanche that uh, spewed forth is really uh, you know had a heavy toll of destruction so i think it's it's very clear let me be very let me step back right i think it's critical to have development i'm not i'm not against it at all and i think it's very privileged to say look i've developed and i think the rest of you should not develop at all you know just we should uh, and i think that's a false equivalence i think if you think through it and you're imaginative enough you can have some degree of development and preserve the environment and for the northeast i talk about the promise of tourism i talk about the promise of textiles and the kind of jobs it can bring uh, far more than the dam can bring and i actually put in numbers there and i think you know when we're thinking of investing in dams and i think that's part of the reason is because of the renewable tag given to dams right um uh, can we reimagine development in terms of tourism um and um, and uh, textiles you know uh, which can provide yeah. plentiful employment and provide development right i'm not saying don't do development i'm just saying can we provide the kinds of development that gives you the jobs you know gives you the livelihoods um, gives you all the benefits that development brings but also keep the very fragile landscape uh, and you know uh, one of the things that i say there is spiritual tourism is a big deal right hmm. and uh, the place where these dams are coming up is uh, is shambhala it's it's a bayul it's paradise on earth it's supposed to be a hmm. spiritually very very charged place so you know what the line i have there is you're standing at the gateway to paradise and what strikes you is a dam you know it's just uh, uh, and spiritual tourism is like you know a several billion dollar industry so even if you want to be crassly spiritual, you, I mean, there are other ways to go about it. To that, uh, you talked about forests and um, there's a chapter valuing forests in the book. Can you tell us what happened when you made your way into the Bandhavagar National Park? What did you observe? How did that change your mind? Um, the Bandhavgar? That's right. Okay. So um, in Bandhavgar, there is a zone called Tala. Right? And one of the perks of visiting Tala is there's a beautiful statue of a reclining Vishnu called Seshashai and uh, he's lying there, you know, glorious in the middle of the forest. And from his feet, there is a stream that is rising. It's called Charan Ganga. Charan means feet, Ganga is Ganga. And when you trace where the stream goes and you look through the forest, there are hundreds of these little streams emanating from the forest. It's basically the trees doing their thing, which is gathering them, slowing down the monsoon rainfall, gathering it, filtering it, and then slowly releasing it over time as streams. And they coalesce and they form the larger rivers. So if you want summertime uh, rain, uh, water, right? Uh, so if you're Delhi and you want water in the Yamuna in the summer, or you live in Madras and you want water in the Kuwam in summer, or I live in Madurai and I want water in the Vaiga in summer, I should really do the, everything in my power to keep my upstream forests alive, healthy, vibrant, which is, you know, that, that understanding is a little bit missing. But then you, you know, when I, as I was spending time in Madhya Pradesh's uh, forest, there was Mahua all around us. And, you know, we saw tribals collecting them. And I go into the book on how central the mahua is to the tribal economy and you know it's their source of cash which is why they risk life and limb to gather it because very often in they gather mahua in the early morning and that's when they are um, vulnerable to attacks and you know they do get attacked and they uh, they sort of retaliate against the animals and it's not a pleasant scenario and what worries me not what worries me i think the tequila, I mean, uh, tequila provides billions of dollars to the Mexican economy. But when you look at, has Mahua been 
tapped enough to sort of give cash flow to the tribals, be harvested sustainably, and yet add the livelihoods, the jobs, the economy, everything else you did? And the answer was depressingly no. And, you know, the, the hope of including it in the chapter is saying, look, we can do this, but we need to get regulations right. We need to get uh, taxation a little more uh, transparent. We need to make sure that the gram panchayats are involved so the communities are not left out of it. But look, there is so much you can do here and you can keep the forest intact, but you can also create the development. Again, you know, this false dichotomy of development versus uh, environment, you know, this is another chapter that says, no, you can do both, but you just need to be careful and uh, imaginative about it. Absolutely. I think it's a false dichotomy and you nudge us to look at the long term instead of prioritizing the short term unsustainable practices. Mridula, I have a few questions from our listeners who sent them in advance. Uh, I'll just walk you um, through them. Maybe you can share your perspective and then we can conclude with some of the things that we can do. So this listener asks, tell us about the um, philosophical intent of canals. What does Adam Smith have to say about water and economics in India? Okay, that's a fantastic question, right? So um, one thing when I looked at colonialism, and um, I read two first-person accounts, right? One of uh, Pennyquick, um, um, you know, who was a colonel, I believe. And then um, C.H. Buck who was an imperial administrator in the Punjab. So let me read what Pennyquick said. Right. He, he reckoned like, you know, he built the dam, connect, he did one of the first river interlinking projects in India, connecting the Periyar River to the Vaigai, right? So it's very personal because the, mm. and river interlinking, can provide an advantage. I mean, the Vaigai has definitely received a boost from the river waters of the Periyar, right? And he did it. But what he said is, look, he said, look, it costs about 85 lakhs. And this was in, uh, in the late 19th century to build this dam and its distribution network, right? And they had to pay 40,000 rupees to the Raja of Travanco for the diversion of the water. And there was an annual maintenance of a lakh and 25,000 rupees. But he said the dam would yield an annual return of 7,20,000 rupees in addition to the amounts fetched by the lease or sale of newly watered land. So it was a, it was a purely commercial decision, right? And this is not even accounting for hydropower, which he hinted was good. Now you go to the canal colonies, which are considered the British's greatest achievement in bringing water to a desert. Now C.H. Bach says, the Chenab uh, Canal irrigates about 2 million acres and there is a net profit of 450,000 pounds, which is a, which provides a 23% return on capital cost, right? It's a shrewd, shrewd commercial return on British capital packaged as development. And of course, by doing that, it, you know, Pennyquick says the moment you bring in the canals, the tank systems, you don't need them anymore. And that's community managed, right? And you see the data for that. And I show the data of how the tank systems in the Vaigai have gone down and why after the river interlinking canals came up. So it's a complete change in philosophy. But your listener, great question, asked a question about Adam Smith. Adam Smith right. is used as a fig leaf. If you actually read some of the footnotes in the uh, in his book, he's He's quite critical about what happened in Bengal and contrasting it favorably with what happened in America. But what his central theme is that don't interfere with markets, right? If if there is drought, don't in, let the market do its thing. Don't government interference will lead to a problem, right? So if there is a drought, your prices will go up, more grain will be imported and you'll solve it. And uh, there was also Malthus, who's a professor who taught um, East India Company uh, administrators, right? He said, look, the population is hmm. always going to um, grow above the um, ability of the earth to support it. So it's not your problem if people die. But when you look at Orissa uh, and what happened there in 1865, and there was a there was a unfavorable weather conditions and the rice harvest was just a third of normal, the exact opposite to what both Adam Smith and uh, Malthus, uh, what Adam said, uh, Smith said would happen, right? Exports continued because the prices were so high. 
The administration did nothing because they said, okay, Adam Smith tells us we shouldn't interfere, so we won't do anything. And traders hoarded grain. They didn't supply it to the markets because they were waiting for prices to rise and exported it to make the most of high prices rather than importing grain. And nearly, I think a million people died. So yeah, it's, uh, you know, thinking of markets in a controlled country doesn't work. So Understood. that answer. Thank you, Mrizal. It was a fascinating answer to a fascinating question. The next one, although you've alluded to it in your previous answer, I'll just ask, uh, how does one decide the price of water today? Okay, so I think I've gone through this many a time. Yeah. But I'll, I'll say, look, first is quantity, right? There is a certain basic minimum quantity of water, which I think everybody requires, right? But if you use more, you should pay more. So definitely progressive pricing along the lines of uh, Chanakya. The second thing is the quality of water. Like Israel charges different prices based on the quality of water. All of us don't need superb water for every use. In, in, uh, in my house, we use three to four different qualities of water, right? We use a different water, quality of water for gardening, for flushing, for drinking, for everything. And, you know, you don't need to pay the same amount for different qualities of water. So first is quantity, second is quality. Third thing is, uh, where are you? Where, you know, what is the geography in which you are charging the water? I think the price of water in a dry region is very different from a price of water which where water is everywhere, right? So that's just common sense. The third, uh, the fourth thing is, uh, when are you charging water? I think with such a seasonal water that India is, the price you charge in the pre-summer and summer months has to be very different from the price of water in monsoonal and post-monsoonal months. So this is sort of the logic or the philosophy, if you were, that I would use for pricing water. Got it. Should surge pricing exist in water? Of course it does. And the poorest pay the highest surge pricing. You know, when the tankers come out for the kill in the summer, no? especially right. in El Nino years, you're paying surge pricing. But who pays the, I mean, for the rich, that's still a peripheral part of their wallet. And then the poor have to make these really horrific compromises. So I, it's just quite horrifying. There is surge pricing and it hits the most vulnerable the hardest. Got it. Got it. Um, Next, uh, this one, this listener asks, in the book, you talk about the history, geography, economics, politics, philosophy, and engineering of water. Uh, did you have an intended audience in mind when you wrote the book? Um, or was it meant for a wide range of uh, stakeholders? Um, okay, that's a great question. I think, like many authors may say, you write for yourself first. And I was trying to understand India's water. And I needed all those lenses to get a you know, 360 degree view of India's water. And um, the what I wrote for anyone who was interested in solving the water problem, right, to persuade them that the amount of power that you have in your own hands is quite substantial. Uh, because again, it goes back to uh, my situation at home, right. So we started trying to understand our water in 2013. Then by 2015, we stopped buying water. 2017 was the worst El Nino, like the 1877 famine was a terrible El Nino. 2016-17 was almost as strong as that, or perhaps as strong as that. And we were the only house in Madurai that didn't buy water. So, you know, there was understanding and the recognition that you have your own role to play can be quite powerful. And that's the person I'm hoping to write for. Fascinating. Mridula, you've had a portfolio of careers, writer, investor, policymaker, business leader. Um, tell us about uh, any advice that you have for people who are trying to build such a portfolio. In your case, was it uh, something that you always wanted to do? Or has this portfolio of career emerged as your curiosities emerged? Yeah, I think it's, uh, I think you can only connect the dots looking back, not looking forward. Um, I think Steve Jobs said that, and I think that's so true. Um, there's a lot of serendipity in there. Um, you know, on days 
like this when i have when all the roles go inside i sort of regret that i do so many different things um so um let me tell you this use zoom very very strategic or use you know digital very very strategically i think not traveling as much as i used to really helped me sort of um get more out of a day <clears throat> being very judicious about saying no um i think is another thing and really understanding and ask and this is not a one time thing right you keep asking yourself is this working is this working is this working and when you the answer is even maybe not you just take it out and i think you have to be ruthless about it and you know periodic calls uh, in what you do um and have a supportive family can't overestimate that one so being nice to your yeah. family so they remain motivated to be supportive to you yeah uh how about your children uh, how do you explain the water crisis to them and what's been their response to the book um see my son is quite excited so i have two kids my son is quite excited because he drew a lot of the stuff in the book right so he's like uh, he's very excited about it and i think um for my daughter who's younger i think her school actually did a lot in terms of making activities um that made water very personal and made it their role so i think you know they sort of grew up with this understanding that water is very much our responsibility they don't think that it's somebody else's responsibility i think they've just sort of grown up this way um uh other than that you know they're just teenage kids right like i mean one of them is a teenager i think if their teacher says it it has more weight than what their mother says <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I'm not giving you like they think it's you know they're like water warriors or whatever because their mother writes on this stuff. They they definitely understand climate change and they see uh, a role and what they have to play. But they're like regular kids, I guess. Right. Final question, Ritima. What advice do you have for our listeners? They could be government officials, CEOs, young professionals um, uh, listening to this particular episode. How can this Support the movement. Um. Okay, so I think the first thing is understand that you are responsible for your own water. The role you can play is substantial, right? That's number one. Second is I'll ask you to ask yourself three questions: How much water did you use today? Where did it come from? And where is it going? If you ask and answer those questions, you will. be more water resilient if you act and act on those answers the next point i'll say is the points in the book adopt your nearest water body i think if the strongest most functional water bodies we've seen is where the community has adopted it and the community was always spearheaded by one person or small group of people so you can be that person so adopt the nearest water body visit your nearest forest right and provide some sort of income to people who live there either through tourism or you know buying stuff they make whatever so visit your forest because unless the forest generate cash flows for those communities they're not going to be secure the third thing is treat your sewage and reuse it to the extent possible and you know you can once you say i can do that you can go wild brown water gray water black water you know you can go wild after that it's detail getting started on the journey is critical Mridula thank you so much for writing such an important book and uh, for sharing your insights with us in network capital your voice would be heard by young professionals around the world and we definitely look forward to having you back with us thank you utkarsh for having me <laughs>